Good morning, everyone. Our reading today is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of the kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's judgment. Sorry, the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the law, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Friends, it's times like this in the book of Romans that it's always good to have a Bible in front of you. So I can encourage you to bring your Bibles to church if you don't have them. We'll have the verses on the screen. But what we are dealing with is a flow of an argument Paul has. So uh, he's writing, writing from chapter 1 right through to chapter 16, book of Romans. And when you get to something like chapter 2 in the middle of it, and you think, why is he talking about judgment, Jews, Gentiles, obeying the law, not obeying the law? Why has he addressed this issue? Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know where we're going. And um, we're, we're going, if you, for those who haven't been here, Paul is arguing that all people, Jews and Gentiles, have fallen short of God's standard, and there's only one way of salvation, and he gets to that in chapter 3, 21 to 31, having given us a summary in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. 16 and 17, it's the gospel, salvation by faith, and he shows how we're all sinners between chapter 1, 18 and 3, 20, and chapter 3, 21, he gets to the gospel again. And here we're looking at the whole idea that uh, God sees into the hearts of men and women, and he knows what they're like, 
and he knows how they behave, even when they're hypocrites. And he also has a go at those who are judgmental, who judge others, and yet they do the same thing. And uh, if you are like that, he says, you will not escape God's judgment. Now, Ross, uh, I won't give you his surname, was a member of parliament and a Christian a number of years ago, active in the Parliamentary Christian Fellowship and the Prayer Network. He preached the sanctity of the family units. He bemoaned the collapse of standards, and he offered rugged criticism of men as selfish in their reluctance to commit to relationships. Of course, to paraphrase his point, there could be a new and different sexual opportunity around the corner. Then in 2004, he had admitted that he himself had had an affair. He confessed to an affair with a Canberra solicitor in mid-2001 while his wife was pregnant. Boom, there you go. Judging others, speaking truthful things about how we ought to live, yet failing himself. And friends, we have seen recently the fall of many high-profile Christian leaders, and that happens time and time again. God's perfect judgment, Paul says, will fall on such people. The only hope any of us have is the forgiveness that comes through the gospel. And in chapter 2 right here, the Apostle Paul adopts what we call a literary style called the diatribe. The diatribe is a sort of a debate conducted between the author Paul and a non-existent imaginary character. It's like Paul is now having a debate with this person. Picture this hypocritical, judgmental person that he's now going to speak to. It says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. He says, You therefore, O man, you man, and he mentions that twice, O man, you have a problem. You're a judgmental person. And this debate about who he's addressing now. We know in uh, chapter 1, 18 to 32, last week, we looked at last week, he's addressing Gentile, the Gentile society, but Gentile immorality. And we saw how debased and depraved that society was in many ways. Now, many scholars think he's now talking to the Jewish people, the uh, religious, moralizing Jewish person. He does address them directly in verse 17, and that's another sermon. But there's also another group that some scholars say he may be addressing in verses 1 to 16. Because you see, the Gentile world that was described last week was not the whole Gentile world. There are others who lived as Gentiles who were more moral, who had values different, and who could have looked at the, the wild Gentile society and said, well, yes, they're terrible. We're not like that. Uh, for example, F.F. F. Bruce writes, we know that there was another side of the pagan world of the first century than that which Paul has portrayed in the preceding paragraphs. What about a man like Paul's industrious uh, or illustrious contemporary Seneca, the Stoic moralist? Seneca might have listened to Paul's indictment and said, yes, you're right, that's perfectly true of great masses of mankind. And I concur in my judgment which you pass on them. But there are others, of course, like myself, who deplore these tendencies as much as you do. Not only did he, Seneca, exalt the great moral virtues, Bruce writes, he exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. 
acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced an inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide. And so some scholars, like John Stott, will say, well, he may be now addressing these people, the moral Gentiles, and maybe also the moral Jews at the same time. The world of self-conscious, critical moralizers who look at themselves and think they're doing well and then judge everyone else. He says there is an inescapable judgment coming, verses 1 to 4. The hypocrite who condemns others will not escape judgment. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same thing, or the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do, do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? If you think, and I think it's applicable to Christians today, because we're often the moralizers, the uh, trying to be godly, and sometimes we become judgmental, and sometimes we put others down, and yet we do the same things. We ask the question, are we too harsh on others and lenient on ourselves? You know, on a, on a humorous note, because it's quite a heavy sermon today, a heavy passage, um, we're sometimes too f- busy focusing on someone else's actions to notice uh, what we're doing and we're exposing our own. And uh, there was a man, you'll probably see where this is going very quickly, there was a man taking a shower when his two-year-old son came into the bathroom and the little child was wrapped in toilet paper. So he made a mess, he looked adorable, and as parents do, he ran for his phone and the camera. Took out his phone, took a photograph, a few photographs of his son. So cute he was. They came out so well that he had copies made and included one with each of his Christmas cards that year. Days later, a relative called about the picture, laughing hysterically and suggesting the man take a closer look at the photograph. Puzzled, he stared at the photo, was shocked to discover that in addition to his son, he had captured his reflection in the mirror, wearing nothing but a camera. Self-righteous moralizers are judgmental hypocrites who are so busy judging others And in fact, they don't recognize or condemn their own sins. And maybe they haven't committed those big sins. So I've never committed adultery, but they've committed adultery in their hearts. I've never stolen, yet they've robbed family members in various ways. They've never committed murder, but numerous times the mental knife has plunged. God sees it all and is not deceived by their self-righteous delusions. And my experience, friends, has been that some of the strongest self-righteous moralizers, religious or otherwise, are often covering over a multitude of sins. They condemn others to cover their guilt and how they feel. A friend of mine was uh, condemned as evil by a deacon in his church, and he was the pastor, my friend was the pastor. A deacon who was saintly on the outside and evil on the inside. He was a hypocrite. His hypocrisy was finally exposed when he abandoned his wife and ran off with his neighbor. 
the so-called moral Christian deacon. But my friend suffered week after week, month after month of abuse by this judgmental, critical moralizer who wasn't moral, very moral at all. See, the self-righteous have an intrinsic blindness to their own faults. We see that even in, say, King David in the Old Testament. You know that terrible story where King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, had been out serving the king, fighting the battles. He saw her, he took her, he was the king. And then he arranged to have Uriah murdered, put out front so he didn't have to deal with his guilt there would no longer be a husband. And Nathan the prophet came to David one day. And Nathan the prophet told of a tale of a rich man who took a poor man's sheep, which the poor man loved. And this rich man slaughtered it to feed his guests. And David, King David, was so horrified and responded, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. Because he did such a thing and had had no pity. Then David said, or so Nathan said to David, you're the man. You're the man, David. You're worried about a sheep. You've taken someone else's wife. And you've seen to the death of her husband. David could not see his own sin. And his sin was far greater than others. Friends, if that is what you are like, give it up, whether you're in his auditorium or watching a live stream. If you are living a hypocritical, judgmental life, a moralized, and you are continuing in sin, give it up. God knows, and judgment will come. See, God's kindness provides an opportunity to repent. It's not an excuse to sin in verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the richness of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? You see, God's patience with us and his kindness should lead us to a, a realization that we are living ungodly lives and to repent of that life and live differently. Some people use it as an excuse for sin. Oh, well, God will forgive me. Oh, I've, do, I've done that again. Oh, God will forgive me. God is gracious. Jesus covered all my sins, right? If I sin again, oh, well, God is gracious. God is gracious. Presuming upon the grace of God. He said, no, no, no. His kindness ought to lead you to repentance, not to sinfulness. William Barclay writes, it is one of the most shameful things in the world to use mercy and loves and loves uh, forgiveness as an excuse to go on sinning. God will forgive me. Well, will he? Because God forgives at true repentance, not simply mouthing words and continuing in disobedience. Secondly, there's righteous judgment. God's righteous judgment will punish stubborn and unrepentant hearts. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So it's interesting, saying these uh, critical moralizers who may look good on the outside, who are hypocrites, no, 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 you are storing up judgment for yourself. Judgment will come. You will not get away with it. And he says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, as soon as you read this verse in the book of Romans, you ought to ask yourself, hold on, Paul, what are you getting at? Because you told us in one, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, salvation is by faith in Christ. Now you're telling me 
you will give to each according to what he has done, we're going to be saved by our works. As soon as you read that, you go, oh, hold on now, what's, hold on, what's he saying in here? What's he getting at? What is he getting at? Well, let's flick through Romans just to make sure we don't misunderstand him. It's already said in Romans 1.16, salvation is by faith alone. We know that. Romans 3, 22 to 24, we'll get that to this in a couple of weeks. This righteousness from God through faith in Christ to all who believe, that's how you're saved. There is no difference. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. It's faith, it's grace, it's free, right? That's, that's his point. That's why he tells us chapter 1, and writes chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, to get to this point, it's all by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore we have been justified through faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. It's consistent. That's what he's teaching. That's what brings life to us. Let me take you to John chapter 5 for a moment, verse 24. I tell you the truth. These are the words of Jesus. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Faith in Jesus it takes you to eternity, right? With Jesus, from death to to life. You're now in Christ. But also in John 5, 28 to 29, and a few verses later, he says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Hold on now. I thought it was believing is enough. And now those who do good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. What's the answer to the apparent dilemma? Is salvation by God's grace through faith alone, or is it by our works? Friends, justification, let me put it this way, you may have not heard it this way before. Justification is according to faith, but judgment will be according to works. Take a moment. Let's see again. As in the words of John Stott, the presence or absence of saving faith will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our hearts and our actions. James 2 says, some will say, I have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. True faith results in loving actions. In Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you say, I have placed my faith in Jesus, I have my ticket to heaven, and it doesn't result in a transformed life, it doesn't result in loving action, then you don't have genuine faith. So a number of times it says, well, you'll be judged by your works, because your works demonstrate whether you have true, saving, genuine faith. You're not justified by that. You're not saved by that but your works disclose whether you have genuine faith or not. Then he talks about two destinies, eternal life or wrath and anger. Verses 7 to 10, To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. 
So there are those pursuing glory, God's glory. They're seeking honor, uh, God's approval. They're looking for immortality. Spending. They want to live with Christ forever. They want to be in the unfading presence of God. Uh, they will have eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, they reject the truth about the gospel. They follow evil. There's wrath and anger. These people live separate to God. They're not interested in God. They're not interested in following him. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Friends, why do we do evangelism? Why do we support world mission? Why do we pray for those who go to the unreached? Why do we give to world mission? Because Jesus is the only way of escape, the only way to find eternal life. And some people continue in sinfulness and disobedience, have no interest in God and his truth, and they'll find wrath and judgment and anger at the end. You know, I remember visiting some of the workers uh, uh, in Southeast Asia. I've been to Bali and Lombok, and uh, I was in the Middle East with Lebanon. Different groups of people, but lost people, their only hope is to find forgiveness through Christ our Saviour. Someone has said evangelism is a deadly serious business. Telling the gospel is no game. There is a heaven to forfeit and a hell to pay. Friends, this afternoon at 2 o'clock at our Chinese service, one of our women's servants come to know Christ. He's going to testify to being saved by Christ, now pursuing Christ, pursuing glory, honour, in, in immortality, following Christ. And she's going to be baptised as a symbol of that. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll have one of our, our young primary age children going to get up in front of us and say, Jesus has forgiven me and changed me. I want to live for him and for his glory now. And friends, finally, there's an impartial judgment, verses 12 to 16. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So therefore, all sinners, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, uh, you'll be judged whether you have the law or don't have the law. The Jew, if you have the law, if you're a Jewish person and you break the law, you're guilty. But the Gentile who doesn't have the law but still sins, they're still guilty. So I said, what happens to the Gentiles? They never had the word of God. Well, they're still sinners. They still break the law. They're still under the judgment of God. Everyone is under the judgment of God. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, verse 13. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So as you read that verse, you're thinking again, Paul, what are you getting at again? Who obeys the law? Don't answer me, it's a hypothetical. Who obeys the law? Well, no one does. It says only those who obey the law will be declared righteous. It's got to be a theoretical or hypothetical statement right here by Paul. Since no human being has ever obeyed the law, so no one will be declared righteous. That's his point in chapter 3, verse 20. That's what he comes to. This is where the arguments go. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes you're not quite sure what Paul's getting at, but you've got to read it in light of his final argument. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So we're all guilty. None of us can do it. No one can obey the law, whether you're Jew or Gentile. You all fall short. But he does say that some Gentiles do what the law requires without ever having had the law. Isn't that true? Now, there are some, some Christians have said to me, listen, I have non-Christian friends 
who are more godly than my Christian friends. They're more loving than my Christian friends. They're more generous than my Christian friends. They treat their families better than some of my Christian friends do. Or they treat their spouses better. You ever heard that? And it's true, sadly. But see, this is what he's saying. There's some Gentiles who do what the law requires without ever having the law. They're not reading the Bible and so on, but there's something that God has put inside of us which gives us, well, we call it a conscience, an understanding, and there's this, a general implanting of God's Word in our hearts, I think. We know what's right and what's wrong. You don't have to tell someone you shouldn't kill someone, right? I mean, even non-Christians know that, normally. But it comes, I think, out of chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so men are without excuse. So in the very creation of the world, there's a sense of which there is someone bigger than us, and there's a certain understanding of morality that we believe there are certain things that are true. And not all human beings are crooks or thieves or adulterers or murderers. Some, as someone said, they honor their parents, they recognize the sanctity of human life, they're loyal to their spouses, they practice honesty, they speak the truth, they cultivate contentment, as the last six of the Ten Commandments require. As much as anyone else, they're doing the right thing. Now, we know that all fall short of the glory of God, they're not perfect, so they're under the judgment of God, but Paul is saying, yeah, some people seem to do the right thing. God's law seems to be written in our hearts, even though we're sinners and rebels. It says their consciences bear witness. And even with non-Christians who don't know the word of God, when they do wrong, they'll sometimes know they've done the wrong thing, don't they? And they feel guilty. Isn't that true? I mean, it's not just Christians who feel guilty when we do the wrong thing. Other people know when they do the wrong thing. There's a sense of morality that they know that they shouldn't break. You know, they shouldn't have kicked their, their child when the child was screaming too much. They know that was wrong, unless their consciences are so deadened that they keep doing it. Most people know that. It's an inner urge to do the right thing. There's guilt, and there's often remorse when you've done the wrong thing. And John Stott writes, you know, I like conscience. Conscience is our ally. The fact that we all have a conscience... In all evangelism, I find it a constant encouragement to say to myself, the other person's conscience is on my side. When you go to share the gospel with them and say, you know, sometimes we fail, we make mistakes, and but yet God loves us, they go, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, I make mistakes. Yeah, sure, I try to be good, but I know I, I never make the grade. I wish I was a better husband. I wish I was a better father. I wish I, better, I was a better employee or a better boss. I wish I was better. And see, in my own conversion, as I've said before, you know, I, I could have been one of those good moralizing good people. That's what I was like. I, I was the good teenager. I see some teenagers here as well. Oh, you're probably all good. You know, I was the moral one. I obeyed my parents. I, I did well at school. Uh, you know, when my mother went, when my mother, I brought it to a parent-teacher night one day. My parents didn't speak English, so they never came to parent-teacher nights. Never went. I turned up by myself. Not like these days. Hi, I'm here. Can I have my report? Where's your parents? You know, they're home. <laughs> Where they always are. 
And one day, and my mum came and all these teachers just said all these lovely things, what a great boy I was, what a fine student, good example, vice-captain of the school. And my mum was very pleased to hear that. But you see, that's what I was like. But you see, when I read the Bible, when I looked into my heart, as good as I was, I realised that I was judgmental, that I was a hypocrite, that I needed the blood of Christ to cover my sins, to start to transform me which brought me to Christ. See, friends, he goes on to say, no one escapes condemnation. We all fall short. None of us measure up. Jew or Gentile, we're all under the judgment of God. I love something that Simon Manchester said, you know, an uh, Anglican minister. He was speaking at the Katoomba Men's Convention one year, and he mentioned that he often would go to speak at a chapel at a private girls' high school. I think he was the uh, minister of the... Uh, uh, St. Thomas is at North Sydney at that stage and plenty of good private schools around that area. And he said, I would go in as a, to speak at the chapel service. And he said, you know, at high school, uh, the girls are, at these schools are often told how wonderful they are. I mean, everywhere we try to build people's self-esteem and you're valuable, you're important, you're special, you know, you're going to change the world, you're going to be the new teal candidates and knock off the Liberal Party. Um, you know, you are the women, Right. And he said, I would go in and speak at the chapel and remind them that they are sinners and they need a saviour. That the school didn't like me at all, he said. The point is, we all need saving. We're not there to condemn each other. We're there to, yes, build our esteem and help each other because we all you know, suffer lack of esteem and value and so on. But it's that somewhere in the middle of that, these girls at that high school needed to know that Christ was a saviour. He came for them. Finally, he says, God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. It's important that God will expose all things in that day. And yet those who trust in Christ have their sins forgiven, have been living for the glory of God, will be safe and secure because of the finished work of Jesus. Friends, the purpose of these chapters is to prove that all human beings are guilty and inexcusable before God, and in particular that nobody can be justified by observing the law. The Gentile world of shameless idolatry and immorality, as we saw last week, is under the judgment of God. The world of self-conscious, critical moralizers, Gentile or Jewish, is also under the judgment of God. And we urge to prepare ourselves for God's judgments. And the way you do that is put in, by putting your faith in the work of Christ on the cross that we come to in a couple of weeks in our sermon. That's our hope. That's our only hope. Whether you are engaged in shameful idolatry or immorality or a self-conscious critical moralizer, you need a saviour. And we give thanks to God for his saving work. Let me pray. Lord God, as we consider Paul's debate with this self-conscious, critical, hypocritical moralizer, we confess that we are sometimes like that. We ask that you would change our hearts, that we would be authentic Christians who trust in Christ alone for salvation. But we also pray that our faith would work our faith would show itself in Christ-like behavior, Christ-like passions, Christ-like desires, 
that we would have a positive impact in our world for the glory of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.